here at RUF, we have been going through the Old Testament book of Judges. And we've said every single week that the book of Judges is a series of, uh, not a series of sermons, a series of true stories that are written to God's people with the intent of showing them God's grace. And when they see God's grace, to therefore call them to faith and obedience. And so we're going to continue looking at that tonight, uh, regardless of where you find yourself spiritually. We're glad that you're here, and we're glad that you've decided to spend the night exploring the truth claims of Christianity with us together tonight. So I'm going to read this passage out of Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 36, and we'll go through a little bit into chapter 7. And I'll remind you that this is uh, God's word for us tonight. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me just make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. And that night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, Anyone who trembles with fear may go back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. This is God's word. Let me pray uh, before we consider it together, okay? Father, we would ask now that as we look at this uh, passage, that you would be our teacher. We need you, Holy Spirit, to come and to open up our eyes, uh, unclog our ears, soften our hearts. Uh, because we have no hope of, of learning and understanding this apart from your help. So would you do that now? Would you be pleased to do that now? That would be our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Like many of you, I presume, I am addicted to the TV show The Walking Dead. And uh, if you haven't seen it, shame on you. But it's a, um, it's a show... Uh, that basically is describing uh, a world post-zombie apocalypse where uh, there's tons of zombies that have taken over, flesh-eating zombies that want to eat you and your brains, and there's just a few, there's a band of human survivors that are trying to make it. And, you know, the action is great, the zombies are great, but aside from all of that, um, it's actually very thought-provoking as well because if you're familiar with the show, there, there are basically two different 
philosophies of life that are represented by two of its major characters. On the one hand, you have Rick, who views the world in the zombie world that they're living in, that you can still maintain uh, dignity and your humanity, and he's all for compassion and democracy. And on the other hand, you have Shane, who is um, committed to that in this world, only the strong survive. It, it, it is kill or be killed if, if, you know, it's survival of the fittest. And what's interesting is that most people that I know that actually watch the show um, hate Shane. They're like, he, you know, he's such a jerk. He's so mean because he thinks if you show one little twinge of compassion, that's weak. And any weakness will, will, any sign of weakness will get you killed in this zombie world that we now live in. Most people I know hate Shane, but I think the thing that's really interesting is that Shane represents what I think is the, is the cultural viewpoint at large. Culturally speaking, we live in a world, and I think you would agree with this if you think about it, where we hate weakness. We hate weakness. I mean, think about it. Is there any rapper out there right now who's talking about how weak they are? <laughs> no, it's about how great they are and how much money I got and how many yachts I own and all that, right? We live in a world that hates weakness and loves strength. And think about it for yourself. I mean, um, uh, when you are picking team, your, your team at the SRC, basketball, or, you know, you're trying to recruit people for intramurals, are you hunting down the weak players, the crappy players. No. I mean, think about it. Do you want a, meek, a weak military protecting you? No. Do, do you want a weak president? Do you, do you want a weak quarterback? No, right? I mean, we, we live in a world where we value and we prize strength and we hate weakness. And so we run into a major difficulty. When the Bible comes at us and when God comes at us and he says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the weak, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those that don't have any power whatsoever. If we are going to connect to God at all, we have to understand weakness. We have to. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this passage tonight and I want to highlight three ways that we can understand weakness. I want to look at the who of weakness, the why of weakness, and the way of weakness. The who? Cool whip. This is, this is two weeks in a row we've talked about cool whip. The who of weakness, the why of weakness, and the way of weakness. Okay? Let's look at the who of weakness. Here's the background. Here's the context for this story in the book of Judges. You have the people of God, the people of Israel, who have rebelled against God. And as a result, God has handed them over to this foreign nation, this enemy nation called the, the, you know, the nation of Midian. And they're horribly oppressing them. And so the people of Israel cry out for help. And in God's mercy, he raises up this dude named Gideon to save them, to deliver them from the Midianites. Now, let me give you a little background story on the person of Gideon. We spent two weeks now looking at him, and we're just, just in case you weren't here, let me just give you a little back way, background by way of review. The first time God comes to Gideon, Gideon is hiding. He's terrified, and so he's literally holed up hiding because he's so afraid. And God comes to him and says, look, I'm going to use you to save 
my people from this foreign nation. Now Gideon is obviously freaked out, doesn't like this assignment. And so he says, but you know, who am I? I'm terribly weak. I'm come from the weakest family that I know. Surely there is a better candidate than me. And God says, no, no, okay, trust me. I will do this through you, but I'm using you. And Gideon says, uh, okay, but I need a sign. How do I know this is even God talking to me? How do I know this isn't like some crazy dream that I'm having? And so God gives him a sign to assure him once again, I've called you to do this. I'm going to let you do this. I mean, do you see how just at every step, how timid, how fearful, how insecure Gideon is? And this brings us right up to uh, this particular story. Let me read you uh, verse 36. Here's, Here's what happens. Gideon says to God, Okay, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor, and if there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. What what does he want? He wants another sign. I know this is what you've said time and time and time and time again. I just need a little bit more assurance. God gives him the sign. Okay? What does he do next? Look at verse 39. And then Gideon said to God, Okay, don't be angry with me. Let me just make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and all the ground covered with dew. And that night, God did so. What do we see here? We see someone who is weak and fearful and faithless and insecure. And God says, I want to use you. I want you. God only wants, and God seems to avoid the secure and the strong and the influential and the powerful. And he says, I want the people who are insecure and the people who are weak and the people who are timid and the people who don't exercise much much faith. Now, here's what's interesting is that I think most of us are like Gideon here. We have doubts. We have fears. We have insecurities. We have anxieties. We need constant reassurance. And I think that you and I are prone to believe this lie that says, unless I'm, I live up to some standard, only then God will want me. Only then God will use me. And usually it's a standard that is not even in the Bible. It's just a standard that we've created. For example, we think God will only use me when I'm on fire for Jesus. We just make up this emotional or devotional standard that we feel like we've got to live up to in order to be valuable in God's economy. Or we say, you know, God will use me, God will want me when I get my prayer life together. Or or God will want me, God will really use me as soon as I start reading the Bible every morning and journaling about it afterward. Or we think, you know, God will God will use me, God will finally use me when I when I get on leadership team, when I find myself in some sort of leadership role. And what you are saying in your heart of hearts is basically this. God wants me and God will use me when I'm spiritually strong. God really only wants the spiritually strong. And you've missed the whole point of Christianity. In 2008, J.K. Rowling, Rowling, the Harry Potter author. How do you say it? Rowling. Rowling, whatever. The Harry Potter author. She gave the graduating commencement speech at Harvard in 2008. And she spoke about failure. 
it was unbelievably brilliant because she's speaking to a room full of people that are at the social and academic, you know, top of the ladder. People who really have no experience with failure, otherwise they would not be graduating from Harvard, right? And so she basically says, you will not understand life unless you understand failure. You will suck at life. It's my words, not hers. You will suck at life unless you understand failure. Let me just read you a couple of excerpts here. Here's what she says. A mere seven years after my graduation day, I had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded, and I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless. The fears that my parents had had for me and that I had had for myself had both come to pass, and by every usual standard, I was the biggest failure I knew. So why do I talk about the benefits of failure? Simply because failure meant a stripping away of the inessential. Failure meant a stripping away of the inessential. And she goes on to say that she has learned that personal happiness lies in knowing that life is not a checklist of acquisition or achievement. Happiness is found in knowing that life is not a checklist of acquisition or achievement. And here's what she's saying. You will not do life well unless you know how to fail. Uh, You will never be free unless you know how to fail. Uh, You will never be happy until you get in touch with failure. And I think she's right. And actually, she she sounds a lot like Jesus in this speech, if you think about it. I know that this can be unbelievably confusing, especially for those of you who are on the outside of Christianity looking in. When you see Christian leaders and uh, celebrity preachers who have enormous churches and who have tons of influence and have big ministries, and they walk with a swagger, and you look at that and try to square... Okay, here's this person who seems to be relishing in their gifts, relishing in the size of their ministry, relishing, relishing in their strengths, and you square that with, with what the Bible says about being failures and being weak, and it doesn't make sense, and I get that. Francis Schaeffer was a, a theologian, and he was, you know, back in the day when he was still alive, he was asked the question, who do you think is the most important Christian in the world right now? You know, and you're thinking, maybe Billy Graham, maybe James Kennedy, one of these guys... Here's his answer. He says, I think the most important Christian in the world right now is someone we don't even know her name. It's someone, some woman who's probably serving the poor in some obscure, distant country and who just spends most of her time praying. That's probably the most important Christian in the world right now. And he gets it. He really really gets it. God only uses the weak. He only uses the weak. And this is really good news. Because if you are anything like me, Uh, You are often faithless and full of fear and timid and insecure and anxious. And God says, I want you. I want to use you. That is really good news. He doesn't say, I want you to climb a spiritual ladder and when you get to a certain point, then I'll find you useful. He says, I want you as you are, where you are, weak and wounded, sick and sore. That is the who of weakness. It's people like Gideon, it's people like you, it's people like me. Here's the second question. Why? Why is this the way in God's economy? Why is he all about weakness? Well, let's keep going. Look at the story. Gideon has gathered this army, an army of 32,000 soldiers. That is a a good-sized army. 
You take the, you know, the student population at App, double it, and that is the army that he's working with. The only problem is, is that they're going up against an army of 135,000 soldiers. So take the population of Asheville as a whole, add 50,000 people to it, and that's what they're going up against. Okay, it's kind of crazy, right? Uh, look at verse uh, chap- look at verse two of chapter seven. God says, "Okay, Gideon, your army, their army, we've got a big problem here." Look at verse two. He says, "Gideon, you have too many people." You're thinking, "Okay, God's this is crazy. What, what, I don't understand this." And so God says, "Tell anyone who's afraid that they can go home." And so Gideon does that, and immediately twenty-two thousand people leave. Two-thirds of his army just walk out. You know, Gideon's feeling really encouraged by that at this point. So he's down to an army of 10,000 men going up against Asheville plus 50,000, right? And God says, okay, we still have a problem. Still too many people. What I want you to do is I want you to go down to the river, and I'm going to sift them out based off of how they drink water. You're thinking, this is crazy. But they go down, and and God says, okay, the ones that scoop up the water and lap it with their tongues like a dog, I want you to keep them, and whoever kneels down and drinks, get rid of them. And only 300 do the dog thing. (laughs) And so God says, that's your army now, you and 300, which I don't know how many people are in this room, but probably somewhere around the size of this room, going up against Asheville. Plus 50,000 people. I mean, this is like the Looney Tunes going up against the Monstars. First Space Jam reference ever. Probably the last, gonna be honest. Probably the last. Here's the question. Here's the question. Why? What in the world? Why, why does God want this little dinky army up against this massive one? I mean, is he just cruel and he just wants to see his people freak out? Why? Here's why. Look at verse 2 of chapter 7. He says, he does this, In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. That's it. He does it to prevent them from thinking that they have saved themselves. God wants them to get so in touch with their weakness that they will have to conclude that salvation is is not earned, it is not merited. It is is purely an act of grace. They did nothing to do it. They, They can take no credit for it. And God says, I want you to get so in touch with your weakness that you know that this had to have been me. And they actually move forward into the battle as the chapter goes on, and they win. Here's what's interesting. Every other religion in the world, every other philosophy, every other worldview says this, that you are saved on the basis of your performance. Here's what's true. You perform the truth. You be good enough. You do enough. You do enough right things. At the end of your life, if your good outweighs your bad, if you're just nice enough, if you're strong enough, then at the end, God will save you. You're saved on the basis of what you do. You're saved on the basis of your performance. The gospel says, we didn't love him, but that he loved us. The the gospel says that we are not good, but that he is good. I mean, the gospel story is that God comes to us in weakness, in the person of Jesus, and, and suffers and dies a death on a cross 
to save people who are not good, people that don't love him, people that don't love each other, people who are not virtuous, people who have nothing to boast about in themselves at all. You see, unless you understand this distinction, unless you understand that I'm either saved by who I am and what I do and what I believe, or I'm saved by pure and radical grace, if you don't understand that distinction, your life will be frustrating. Because if you think, if you really do think that God loves me and God accepts me and God answers my prayers and God wants me into heaven because of what I do, this leads you to feel terribly insecure because how do you know if you're doing enough? Or it leads you to complete arrogance because you actually think that you're doing enough. And on the other hand, it either leads you to be full of self-pity because you're not living up to your standards or it fills you with self-righteousness because you actually think that you are. Do you see that if, if you operate in the world by God loves me and God accepts me and God answers my prayers because of what I do and how good I do it, there's no security. There's no stability. And at the end of the day, there's no salvation. Jesus says, only sick people go to the doctor. I've not come for healthy people. I, I have not come for the righteous. I've come for sinners. And what this means is this. God only wants the weak, people who have nothing to boast in, in and of themselves, so that he can get all the glory and all the credit. And that you would know when, when you are saved, it, it is an act of complete and radical grace. That is the why. He does it. He wants us to get in touch with our weakness so that we know that salvation is either from us or it's from him. Salvation is either from us or salvation is from the Lord. That's the why. Here's the last thing. The way of weakness. The way of weakness. And here's what I mean by that. This story, it really helps us to understand two things. It helps us to understand the way into the Christian life. And it helps us to understand the way of the Christian life. Two things. The way in and the way of. Let's look at each of these one at a time. Here's how this helps us understand the way into the Christian life. It's basically this. The bottom line is that you cannot be saved if you think that you are good. You cannot be saved if you think that you are good. God's saving power, it only, it only works on us when we first admit that we are weak, when we have no goodness, when we have no worthiness, when we have no merit about ourselves at all. That's the only time, that's the only way that God's saving power actually begins to work. If you think about it, at the heart and soul of the Christian gospel is a cross. Now, what does the cross communicate? If you just think about it, what does the cross say? It says, we are so wicked and so messed up that it took no less than God to come and to bear the punishment that we deserve. Someone had to bear a punishment. Someone had to die in our place. And it was so big. The punishment was so big that it took no less than God to do it himself. I mean, the cross is a standing insult to anyone who thinks that they're good enough, anyone who thinks that they can save themselves. But while the cross offends your pride, and it offends mine, the cross is also a beautiful invitation to finally put your doing down and to come as you are weak and broken and to receive him knowing that he will. Coming with nothing but your weakness and he receives you. You know, when I, whenever I go to the grocery store and I come back home, I have, you know, a trunk full 
of grocery bags. And if you're anything like me, I don't like to go back and forth, like, you know, take several trips. So what do I do? Is I load up, like, 800 bags on, on each of my fingers to the point where the plastic is not, like, cutting into my fingers. And while I have, you know, literally 20 bags and trying to get into the door and hobbling my way through our house to drop them off on the, you know, the kitchen counter, as soon as I walk in the door, I have a sweet little 18-year-old daughter who looks at me and says, Daddy! And she runs towards me. Now, as much as I want to hold her and receive her, I can't, right? I have got my hands full. I'm not going to smash my child with the groceries. I really don't know why everyone's laughing at me. I'm telling a story about the future. This is, this is down the road. She's 18 months old. I, I don't have an 18-year-old daughter. And uh, she doesn't come to me saying, Daddy. Wow. We should close in prayer. This is... How do you recover? How do you get out of this? Um, I have an 18-month-old daughter who, when I come through with the bags of groceries, she wants me to hold her. She wants me to receive her. And the problem is, is I cannot receive her. I cannot embrace her because I've got my hands full. And here's the point I'm making with all this. If you come to God and you carry your hands uh, full of bags... And instead of those bags being full of groceries, they're full of trophies of your accomplishments, of your achievements. You cannot receive him because your hands are full. You cannot receive him because your hands are full of your stuff. You obviously don't need a savior because look at how good you're being. Look at how good you're doing. You obviously do not have any need for someone stronger than you because look how strong you are. Your hands are full of your own accomplishments. It's only when you put your bags down and say, God, I, you, have, I, you have no basis to love me. That's when your hands are empty that you can actually receive him. As the hymn that we often sing says is that nothing in your hands you bring, simply to the cross you claim. And when your hands are empty, then you can actually receive him. And so let me just talk with my friends in the room that um, don't identify yourselves as Christians. The way into the Christian life is to come with nothing but weakness. And I think this is unbelievably good news, that you do not have to jump through hoops. You don't have to go through some curriculum to get yourself to a certain point. It's just coming with nothing but your sin and your guilt and your shame and your secrets and your lust and your pride and your greed. And with those hands, he receives you. But coming to him, receiving him, it really is an act of the will. It really is choosing and making a decision to embrace him, to, to receive him. And so the invitation tonight for you, as it always is, is to come to receive him, to embrace him. That really is the way into the Christian life. The way into his heart is to come with weakness, to not come with your accomplishments, to put the grocery bags of your trophies down 
and to receive him. That's the way in. Now here's the second thing, the way of. When you come into the Christian life, you are weak and you are needing a savior. But as soon as you start living the Christian life, for the Christians in the room, you know this, that your sinful nature, it does not go away. The old man, as it were, is still there. And that means that if you're a Christian, there's a very real and a very big part of you, and there's a very real and a very big part of me that hates weakness. We hate it. We hate feeling weak. We hate feeling out of control. We hate feeling that we have to be dependent on someone else. That makes us feel out of control and crazy. And so we hate getting in touch with weakness. And so what happens is that in God's kindness, he gives us a gift. He gives us the gift of repentance. What repentance is, is basically turning from your sin and coming to God. Coming to him. It it is a gift. It's basically the more that you recognize how sinful and how needy you are. The more in touch with your weakness and your frailty and your desperation that you get, that's when the gospel really starts to get active. And it grows deeper and deeper into your heart. When you throw yourself at a strong and a reliable Savior, knowing that you are weak, that's actually when you become the most strong. The more weak that you become, it's almost like you're becoming invincible. Now, here's what I mean by that. If you remember the end of the movie... Eight Mile. Uh, Eminem, aka B Rabbit from the movie, uh, he's in this rap battle. And you, if you're familiar with this, with the story at all, they have these freestyle rap battles where basically the whole point of this is that you know you got 45 seconds to shame and embarrass the other person and to elevate yourself over them. You're, the whole point is basically to say you are a tool and I am the man, right? <laughs> But he gets to the very end of this tournament. He's like at the very, the last round. And what does he do? He doesn't disparage and put down the other person. He, he disparages and puts down himself. Let me read you a couple lines as I'm able to. <laughs> I had to edit this pretty heavily. But here's what he says. He says, this guy ain't no MC. I know everything he's got to say against me. I am white. I am a bum. I do live in a trailer with my mom. And he just goes on and on and on about, he's just, he throws himself under the bus for the whole time. I am a mess. You did beat me up. You did take my girl from me. Here I am. Now, what he's basically doing is he's basically saying publicly, I'm a mess. I'm a failure and I'm weak. Now, what he's doing is not really repentance. (laughs) But what he's doing is he is saying, look, I'm going to tell you everything bad about me, how weak I am, how such a mess that I am. And at the very end of this verse, at the the very end of this rap, what he does is he says, okay, now tell them something they don't know. And he throws the mic at the dude and the dude's got nothing to say. And he wins. He It's like he's invincible. He's untouchable. He already knows anything bad that you can say against him. So say it because it's not news to me. When he is in touch with his weakness, when you get in touch with your weakness and your frailty, it's almost like you become invincible. Because when you get in touch with your weakness and you throw yourself at a Savior who is strong and who is reliable, the Lord Jesus himself, when you receive criticism, when you receive any sort of critique against you, Instead of having to defend yourself and get defensive and to blame other people and to just excuse away whatever happened, you can actually be like, yeah, of course that's true about me. Tell me something I don't already know. 
And actually, the ironic thing is the more criticism you receive, if you are someone who is saved by grace and you receive criticism, that actually makes the love and the grace of God that much more precious to you. Because you see, okay, you're pointing out my sin. Maybe sin that I didn't, I didn't even know about. That's that much more sin that Jesus atoned for. He's that much more gracious, that much more loving than I ever thought he was. And it actually fuels your love and your devotion to him. Any criticism that you receive, if you are someone that you're, and you're saved by grace, when you receive criticism, over time, it should be like having someone throw gas on the fire of your love for God. That makes you untouchable. That makes you invincible. What can they do? What can they say against you? You already know everything that's bad about you. That's why you need a savior, and you have one. Let me wrap up with this. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is talking about this particular season in his life that was really painful. And he went through a season of suffering that he describes as having a thorn in the flesh. Now, we don't know what he's referring to there, but it sounds painful. A thorn in the flesh. And he cries out for God to remove it. He he cries out for God to eliminate the suffering. And he says, here's what God's response is. This is in 2 Corinthians 12, by the way. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. He says that God says, my grace is enough. My love for you, it is enough for you. And then he goes on. This is unbelievable. He says, Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about what? About his accomplishments? About his resume? About his church attendance? No. He says this, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That is insane. That is unbelievable. Here's a man who says, insult me, kill me, persecute me. That just makes me savor and love the strength of Jesus that much more. He's untouchable. When you get to the end of yourself and you can finally admit, I am a mess, I am weak, I'm a failure, and you throw yourself at the strength and at the mercy of a dependable Savior, the Lord Jesus himself, when you are weak, then you are strong. You are untouchable. You're invincible in that sense. And so let me just end with this. The invitation for you tonight is this. To come, ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. That's the invitation. Let me pray. Father, we would pray that that you would humble us, that we would put aside our pride, that you would kick out from under us the crutches of our accomplishments and our resumes and our achievements, and would you bring us face to face with our weakness. Break us to the point where we finally cry out that we need you, And assure us of the promise and of the grace that you actually receive people who cry out. I I pray, Father, for me and for my friends in the room that uh, hate weakness and hate feeling out of control and hate feeling dependent. That you would would break us and that you you would get us so in touch with how needy we are that we would see that much more clearly how beautiful and strong and powerful you are. I pray that we would be able to say salvation is from the Lord and the Lord alone. 
and that you would get all the credit, and that you would get all the glory, and as a result, we would be the most alive. That's our prayer, and we would pray this in Jesus' name.